historically, we used to crunch data, deliver recommendations, and then say to the organization, please apply these recommendations as a part of a project. What we do today instead is we still crunch data, but we need to do it in a lot more robust and resilient way because what we are essentially delivering is a product that gives ongoing recommendations that need to work in a couple of months or in a couple of years, and the model needs to adapt along with them. Welcome to Quanta Black Voices, a series of interviews with the talented and diverse people building products to capture the transformative power of advanced analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. Today, we're talking to Yuri Klein, one of our data engineers in London. Yuri details his journey to data engineering from his early passion in mathematics to mechanical engineering and forensic data analysis. At each step, Yuri describes the skills he learns that have contributed to his current career in data engineering. Yuri provides a deep dive on the role of a data engineer, and we go on to talk about how the role has changed as the industry has evolved from one-off analytics insights to mature machine learning products providing ongoing recommendations. If you're interested in the discipline of data engineering and are keen to understand what skills you need to succeed, this interview is for you. To learn more about Quantum Black and McKinsey Company, head to www.quantumblack.com. Thank you very much for joining us, Yuri. Can you introduce yourself? Tell us who you are and what you do at Quantum Black. Yep. Thank you for having me, James. My name is Yuri Klein. Yuri, because I usually go by Yuri at work, and I'm a senior data engineer at Quantum Black. Fantastic. And thank you for the clarification on the pronunciation, because I clearly would not be able to nail no, that's the, the that, accurate one. That's okay. That's just Czech language for you. Okay. It's, it, it's good fun to study it for many, many years and still be unsure about the intricacies and, and complications of it. Good. That makes me feel a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you go to school? What did you study? How did you get interested in data engineering? Yeah. So let's start from the beginning. So I'm from a small city called Olomouc in Czech Republic. Went to a couple of, they're called gymnasium, but it's a grammar school, essentially the equivalent of historically the latest one being a bilingual Czech and English school. And studied whatever you study out of grammar school, sort of the, the, the classical subjects. And my biggest interest was mathematics and English for that matter. Tell me about your interest in mathematics. Why were you interested in mathematics? I just really enjoyed solving the problems, right? Solve for X and so on. And it was different from other subjects. I really enjoyed all the other subjects as well, history, geography, and so on. And But maths and further maths always stood out. It was so different from everything else. I liked your framing around problem solving because that makes the, the whole discipline seem more like a tool that you can use rather than something academic you have to learn. Yeah. Maths is essentially a language. There's a quote that's been floating around the internet and the world for that matter, which is that mathematics is the language of nature in the way that we as humans try to interpret it. Wow. Okay. That's deeply profound. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, so yeah, maths was the subject of choice. And then the decision during the end of secondary school was, what do I actually do with this if I, if I really like it and I want to continue with it? And I started applying. So initially I studied in Prague and I studied 
mathematical engineering, but it was at a faculty of nuclear science. Okay. But eventually I thought it was a bit too theoretical for me. And after about half a year, I decided I might as well try something else. And I applied for mechanical engineering at the University of Bristol. Right. And why Bristol? First of all, English. And yeah. I suppose I am, or I was, and I still am, an Anglophile. I used to love to watch, I don't know, Mon- Monty Python and <laughs> Bottom and all these old UK series. That's fantastic. And I figured, let's try it in the UK. And then I looked through the universities and Bristol came out as one of the sort of top unis for engineering. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. So I applied and I actually got an offer from them, but not from mechanical, surprisingly, but the person responsible for picking the students for engineering mathematics in Bristol saw my application to MechEng and said, hey, I really like your profile. Would you consider changing your application for engineering mathematics with us instead? We're a small department. Here's the description of everything we do. We think you'll be a good fit. Tell us what engineering mathematics is. What was the pitch? What were they saying we're going to learn there? So the pitch can be interpreted in two ways. The first one that they often give to students is, so you know A-level maths. Would you like to do more of it at university level and apply it to sort of real problems? And then there's the second pitch, which is the industry pitch, right? Which is our students, once they successfully finish the course, they go on and work in Formula One, which I was a big fan of always. Mm. And they go on and work in aerospace and they design these beautiful airplanes and helicopters and they go on and work in all of these industries. And that obviously, like, as a young kid, that obviously instantly catches your eye. Yeah, no doubt. I'm also interested in your choice to go that direction because you were saying that pure mathematics was a bit theoretical, too theoretical. And then earlier on, you were saying that mathematics is a tool for problem solving. So I guess engineering mathematics and its application probably appealed to that side of it being a tool for you to use. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about the degree. So the degree is... As mentioned previously, engineering mathematics, and we did a lot of things. So a lot of it was again con- just continuing the mathematics. You ha- there's literally a course called engineering mathematics that is infamous for like having the highest exam participation because literally every single other engineering course needs to have it as well. Right, aerospace, mechanical, and so on. It's for two years in a row, and they're the biggest exams. Where there's sort of a thousand students at the same time take it. Got you. But your your class was a small class. Yeah, but our okay. class was a small class. That was just like an offshoot. That was 40 people. So you had the course, you had the engineering mathematics, but the biggest component of all, by none, was a course called mathematical and data modeling, which is essentially in first year, you get one project. In second year, you get three projects. In the third year, you get four projects. And that team project, you get assigned with a couple of other people and you work at a goal. And I suppose this really shaped my career because I remember in third year, there was a fantastic assignment that we had, which was essentially tracking the flock of pigeons and and establishing which pigeon is the leader based on a nature magazine or whatever it was data set. And it was fantastic because essentially we were a team of five. So every single person took a method and it was either a mathematical method, like a sort of applying a an already existing equation. Or some people took the data science route, which is you take the data and you give it 
the end goal, the target. And then you say, okay, given the data and the target, give me the program, give me the model, give me the equation. And some people took the opposite route and they say, given this equation and given this data, give me the output. Okay. Which approach worked? Both of them to an extent. They sometimes give you conflicting results, which is the fantastic thing about academia because you, you don't get to talk about it as well. These approaches give us conflicting results. I think at that point, I wasn't familiar enough with data science and these approaches. So I took the engineering approach. I, okay. I think I took a computer graphics, looking at the pigeon in the kit that is the one in the front from right. like a computer graphics set of nodes perspective. Right. And then correlating that with the targets, essentially. Okay. Conscious that I might be dumbing this down here, but is that essentially just looking at images of the flock and seeing which bird is at the front the most no so it was gps tracking it was okay. like, i think the, the the pigeons were given little backpacks with, ah. with gps trackers oh that seems like cheating that seems like <laughs> cheating you've got of course you know which one's at the front if you've got little trackers on them not always oh okay you need a plane of reference for right. all of them what does it mean in front for a flock of pigeons what oh if, wow what, this just got meta yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah what if one starts overtaking and what if the leader is not strictly in the front Right. the leader is in the middle of the pack and so on. So it was all about correlating all of these methods together. God, and I guess a lot of analogies there for leadership in real life. Where exactly. was the leader located the most? At the front, in the middle, or the back? It was towards the front, but it wasn't always the first and foremost pigeon. Okay. It was essentially who changes direction first, because that's kind of how you look for the leader. If they just fly in a straight line, you don't really have any signal there. Yeah. But if they go left or go right, then you begin to look at the sort of, or at least what I did, look at the vectors of which direction they're heading and right. which, which vectors change the most the first. Did you draw any insight from that in terms of leadership in your current role and, and, and the work that we currently do? That is a very good question <laughs> that I haven't thought about yet. <laughs> I think you should think about that, Yuri. I, I think uh, if you were, we're taking lessons from nature here, which is obviously what mathematics apparently is, then um, maybe there are things that we can learn from that and the yeah. way that uh, flocks are led. Maybe that's a follow-up interview. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we've spoken about your uh, engineering mathematics education. What did you do afterwards? What, how did you go and, and apply that in the real world? Yeah. So my first role after engineering mathematics was I became a forensic data analyst. Okay, that sounds cool. It sounds cool. Once you sort of begin to describe that job, it becomes a little bit more, it gives it a little bit more flavor and it gives it a little bit more perspective. Obviously okay. the word forensics is somebody essentially instantly has the image of CSI. CSI yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally imagining CSI. Okay, well, tell us, tell us more about the role so I'm less likely to think of CSI memes. It's still all about crime, right? But it's more about the sort of white collar crime. Okay. Um, it's about investigating data and looking for crime or sanctions or similar, you know, financial crime or sanctions violations most typically. Okay. This is what you look at. So as an example, I worked overseas. I worked in Nordics because data can never leave where they're at for a year, essentially, although the project has been running for much longer. And it was a sanctions investigations. What's a sanction investigation? It was understanding whether the institution, a bank in this case, has violated any sanctions, in this case specifically relating to 
dollar trading on facilitation of dollar payments to sanctioned countries in this okay. case iran and are you doing that job on behalf of the bank or for someone else on behalf of the bank oh right so it's yeah. the bank almost investigating itself it has to yeah okay where essentially they often get approached by it's called ofac office of foreign asset control in the us and ofac says to them we believe that there may have been some wrongdoing on your behalf and if you don't correct this then your uh, dollar trading license will be suspended Mm -hmm. and yeah and that's when this bank needs to then or this financial institution is then needs to go and investigate what has happened in the past many years and go through essentially all the relevant we looked at swift payments all of the relevant swift payments from what's a swift payment it's a message, essentially. It's a, it's a message that confirms a transaction between one institution and one entity to the other. Right. And we had to go through millions and millions of messages and understand whether any wrongdoing has taken place and then understanding whether it was intentional, unintentional, and so on. Fascinating. How does maths come into play here? So maths comes into play so, sort of in the perspective of data. Here is where I became, for the first time ever, a data engineer. Okay. Despite the title of forensic data analyst and so on, you still analyze data. But right. it's all about it's the same thing of solving for, for many data points, for understanding, for filtering for particular words, for fil- filtering for, for particular phrases and other flags, you would say, other signal in a very classical way and extracting transforming and loading this data and until you end with a set number of transactions that need to be manually inspected by legal teams and so on. Got you. You described yourself becoming a data engineer. What skill sets did you learn there or have to learn to go through that evolution? So obviously, I mean, the big one that is on the top of the list, I had to learn programming. So historically, in engineering mathematics, when you do a lot of mathematical and data modeling, you work with tools like MATLAB okay, and so on, these sorts of modeling programming engines, you would say. Or if you're very, very unlucky, Fortran 77 or something like that. Okay. Um, That's probably an in-joke I'm not going to get. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's a very old school language, but, but, but the so many of old mathematical models are written in it still which is part of my dissertation but transforming one of them anyway so programming is obviously on the top of the list Mm. and working with databases and work and just moving copious amounts of data from one place to another and filtering and understanding it what is in it and what language was that in so this particular job was pure sql right just pure sql because again that is a that was a great preparation for me, two years down the line, when I started working with Quantum Black, I had these, on this job, I had these limited tools, this mm. limited toolkit of what I can do. I can do, I can work with SQL just purely in the database, or I can write a little bit of C Sharp that was sort of restricted under the CLR, common language routine that they had, where they, right. the, the two languages sort of work together. And you sort of get given very limited amount sets of tools restricted and you need to make do that was, that was fantastic so the, the, those two years 
of my first job felt like a preparation for becoming a data engineer at Quantum Black. That's awesome. It's become a bit of a trend actually during these conversations where someone has reached a point in their career or education where they've realized that programming is something they need yeah. as part of their toolkit. Yeah. But it can be quite intimidating. Oh, yeah. It's scary, right? It's, so it's think so about scary. learning a programming language. Even learning a language generally can be quite scary and, and, and frankly, quite difficult. For anyone that has reached that point in their career or their education where they're saying, right, programming is something I just have to learn, what advice would you give them to figure that out, to overcome the fear factor? What I would say is start easy, start slow, but start and start doing it. The advice I would give is just ignore the books at the beginning. They will make sense. They will make sense, these high-level concepts about allocating memory and types and classes and objects. And they will make sense when the time comes, but start doing it. The beautiful thing, and to name a language, and I think other people have already said this, but for example, Python, right? Just start, print out a bunch of prompts. It feels it feels really cool, especially if you're really young, <laughs> to just go and like work, it, work in the command line and just print out a bunch of things. Do you think having a mission is important? So obviously you, you learned SQL while on the job. There was an, another intrinsic motivator there for you to figure it out. Do you think having a mission or some other driver is important? Having a project. Again, I can, I can give an, an example. Some years back, but I bought a, a PlayStation game, Formula One 2018, 17, whatever, one of them. And I found out that it has a, a UDP stream. Uh, UDP is a protocol transfers messages over the internet. But what it essentially means is that I can extract the telemetry of the car as I'm playing out of the game, out of the PlayStation, and display it on my computer over my local network. Okay. Now, it sounds weird, but it'll make sense in a second. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what I found out that I can actually code it in a way that I can make a dashboard for myself, right? And feel like I, I am my own race engineer. So I can create this dashboard that says all the speed and like the sector times and all of that and loads on wheel one and loads on like the different parts of the mechanics and all of that you get to extract from the game. The game already carries it. So having a project like this, even if it's something completely silly, right? Like creating your own telemetry for Formula One, <laughs> I think is super cool. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Pick a project that appeals to your interests Yeah, and that will make it more engaging. And then it's not necessarily about learning something for the sake of learning it. It's about actually solving a problem that's interesting to you. Or alternatively, if it's something that it's something that can help you in your life. For example, and this is a thing that I've done because it was for to book classes for I can't remember for gym or something like that. Yeah. And they would always open at 6 a.m. and by 6 30 they would be booked out. Right. But I really didn't want to wake up at 6 a.m. Okay, which seems counterintuitive to you wanting to join the gym, but go on. Exactly. <laughs> but I would write a bot that would essentially wake up instead of me at 6 a.m. every day or whenever the classes would open, and it would book the classes for me. Okay. So you're the reason that I can never get tickets to festivals. Probably, yeah. Right, great. Yeah, Good no, to know. With, Good with, to know. with festivals, I think it's a bit different. There's like a <laughs> queuing system and it's a bit different. But yeah, in case you couldn't get... A, get booked into a class at i think it was a spinning class at highbury i'm probably the reason got you okay i i think that's great advice 
if you're going to learn something, if you're going to teach yourself programming, use a project that is going to help you in the long run to incentivize you doing that thing or to learn that language. Yeah. That's fantastic. Something that gives you energy, right? Something yeah. that inspires you, something that you like. Something that sparks joy. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. As Marie Kondo would say. <laughs> All right. We went off on a bit of a tangent there, but it was super interesting. We were talking about skill sets that you picked up while being a forensic analyst that led to you becoming a data engineer. And programming was at the top of the list. But the fact that you said top of the list makes me think there were other things on that list. So what are those things? Yeah, I would say there's a, obviously programming is the top of the list, but there's there's many other things. And one in particular, and that really, really relates to the sort of consulting style data engineer that I really enjoyed is solving actual problems okay. in the world. Because there's this often this perception that a lot of IT or coding or software engineering style jobs don't really solve real problems. They just, you know. They're there to execute, yeah. to write code. Yeah, right. they're, they're there to write code. But what I found was really powerful was essentially go through this motion of taking real life data and solving a real life problem, right? In this case, it was a, in, th- in this case, in my first job, it was a san- big sanctions investigation. Yeah. But then later in QB, it's about taking real life data from public data sets or whatever it is and so- solving a real life problem. Right. So that is, again, very important for a data engineer. That's such an interesting insight. Because what you had described earlier was that the best way to actually learn a language is to, is, is to try and solve a problem with it rather than just to simply learn it. But then your role as a forensic analyst reinforce that. Absolutely. Fantastic. Okay. If I, if, if I could say that it was, it was the best preparation to become a data engineer <laughs> is, to, is to become a forensic data analyst. <laughs> right. Got you. Okay. That's a good tip. So you were a forensic analyst with Deloitte for how many years? Two years. Two years. And then you came to QB after that? I did. Okay. And you are now a data engineer at Quantum Black. I am. We've touched on the skill sets and some of the things you've learned on your path to becoming a data engineer, but I'd, I'd love for you to describe your own framing of what a data engineer is. Like, How would you describe the role of a data engineer to someone that's interested in getting into the industry? Yeah. It depends on the definition of that you have for data engineering the one i really really like is very all-encompassing is that data engineering is everything that happens before you begin your data science right the reason why i like this first of all is very vague and it allows me to it allows (laughs) me to define the scope of my work yeah but obviously it then attracts a lot of responsibility mm. and and it is a intrinsic part of advanced analytics and of data science you often have a lot of data scientists who say or self report that 80% of their work is data engineering yeah. you know, in a lot of organizations now in my head that sounds that they're more data engineers than they are data scientists if that makes sense it does make sense and i guess what I've learned from a lot of these interviews and from having worked at Quantum Black is that it's very challenging to put a title on any of our employees and say that that's the box that they fit in. I think there's such diverse profiles exactly. at this company. That being said, do you think you could provide a little bit of a deep dive on 
that broad spectrum you described earlier. So all the work that happens before the data science, like what does that look like? You know, what are those things? Absolutely. So it can be anything from helping setting up the architecture and the infrastructure that you're going to be working on. A lot of people title this with DevOps or MLOps, mm-hmm. developer operations or machine learning operations. Mm. That's one part of it. Then another part is you're essentially the custodian and owner of the data sets that get ingested into your platform, into your framework, into your model. And you're the custodian of them all the way from the raw data, be it a data stream, be it an extract, an Excel spreadsheet that somebody provided that's like a control data set, Mm -hmm. anything like that. And you take it through this journey where you have millions or billions of rows of completely unfiltered raw data on one side. That's your input. And then it is your responsibility to provide it to your data scientist, to your counterpart. Mm -hmm. Now, at the same time, Which also could, at the same time, be the data engineer. Exactly. Right, okay. (laughs) At the same time, you have this big responsibility to be able to do this not just once, but a thousand times, right? Or until the model is obsolete, for example. Right. So you need to build it in a robust way that works for data gaps, failures, because it's, it's never pretty. You never open it and it's and it, it will be like a pristine data set. Yeah, no one just looks at their data and then starts doing predictive analytics. Exactly, it, exactly, right? exactly. And that is often the big misconception. Yeah. Right? That is sometimes a little bit skewed when somebody trains on sites like Kaggle. They obviously get great data science, but then they come into an organization as a data science and they realize that 80% of their time they spend fixing the data so that they can do their job as a data scientist. Right, got you. And this is where we like to come in and help out as much as we can. One of the things you said that really interested me, which is that you need to know what the data is going to be used for. Because I think earlier on you were saying that you need a problem-solving mindset. You know, you need the consultant hat on. So although what you're describing is a series of activities or, or a series of things that need to happen before a data scientist starts modeling with that data, you still need sight of the problem being solved. Absolutely. So it's not a waterfall process where you do one thing and then hand it over. It's end to end. It just happens to be that the focus of those activities happens to be before the point where you start modeling with it. Exactly. It's, it's very much a feedback loop where you, as a data engineer, you often present to your data scientist and to your leadership and you say, this is the kind of data that we have. This is the realm of possible. And then they will often tell you, okay, we believe we should be heading in this direction. Mm. And the data scientists especially, they will say, okay, I believe I can, based on the data that we have, I believe I can build this particular model. Yeah. And they already have this model in mind. And then you begin to agree on, and pardon the technical terms, you begin to agree on the unit of analysis and Mm -hmm. you begin to agree on what your table, your interface between data engineering and data science is going to look like. Mm-hmm. And and you feed back to your team and so or to to your data engineering team and you say, okay, so we this is likely what we will be building. And you begin building it. And then you often realize that the data may not exactly be there. Yeah. So you feed it back. You and and you say, look, we we ran this 
exploratory data analysis. Yeah. And we believe that the data may not be there. It may not provide exactly the insights that we thought it will. Yeah. So you feed back to them and they say, okay, well, we're going with a different model then. Yeah. Based on these, these sorts of features that I need. So you, you, you feed back and, and, and it's, it's many, many iterations. I love the feedback loop concept that you described there because it's so core now to, I think, the modern discipline of software development and the way that we build products like digital products, that there has to be this feedback loop more so than ever in the space of data and analytics because it, a lot of it is experimentation. Absolutely. What you've described there is a team trying to figure out what the right approach is. So there isn't this linear path from A to Z. There has to be a loop involved there because the experimentation might change the way you approach things and you might have to go back and re-engineer parts of it. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's it's like a Pandora's box. You sort of, the, the, the data is, you, you open it and you have a first look at it and then and then you realize like, oh, okay, there's a lot of things that I don't like. There's, <laughs> there's always hope at the bottom of it. But, but, but then you begin unpicking it and you say, okay, well, this is this I can't use. Okay, this, this I definitely cannot use. And then you begin to find these diamonds in the rough. <laughs> I, uh, I love the Pandora's box metaphor because it positions data engineers as looking into a box of chaos and still extracting value from it. <laughs> I want to talk about a topic that I know that you have a keen interest in, which is the evolution of our work from project-based insights to product delivery, software delivery. Can you talk a little bit about how the industry has changed over the past few years and what we're starting to see as a trend amongst the work we do in this space? Yeah, absolutely. So historically, Quantum Black, and I, and I suspect a lot of companies have been deploying, I would say, their data science models or advanced analytics models in a very project-based way, in a way of giving recommendations, which in a very much like a one-off. Okay. Where you come, you ingest the data, you work with it, you sort of, you do your classic extract, transform, load, or extract, load, transform for that matter. And you build your table, your model input table, and you run a bunch of models on it and you look for insights and you get the insights and you say, okay, these are the levers that we need to pull on or we need to push and we need to modify in a particular way. These are the actionable things that we can actually do. Okay, that's it. And then they would wipe their hands and say, that's it. We don't, we don't really need to do anything anymore. It's a it, it was a recommendation. It was about delivering a project. Yeah, absolutely. I, you describe it as like, it's, uh, that's where our responsibility ends. But uh, there was a lot of value in those insights. Yeah, absolutely. They were amazing, right? Yeah. They delivered what they were meant to do. They delivered insights and especially actionable insights. So we crunched data. We looked for recommendations. We provided those as one-off insights. And then that was the project done. There was always a phase of independence beyond that where... Where they applied those recommendations. Where they applied those recommendations yeah, sure. and, and so on. But that's how often historically advanced analytics models have been deployed. And how has the world changed? Well, the world has changed a lot and it is still changing. So we don't know what's it going to look like in a couple of years. But these days, what we essentially do is that we deploy products, as you, as, as you alluded to. Mm. We 
come and do the same thing where we look for insights and recommendations and everything associated with it. But then we have to do that on future data and again and again and again. And the model needs to be built in a way where it can be retrained because the purpose of every model is essentially to become obsolete because if, if it gives you recommendations, actionable recommendations, and then you apply those recommendations, well, then eventually the model will stop recommending anything because it runs out of you know, these, these recommendations. So its purpose is to become obsolete if it's well applied. And as time passes, the data will have changed anyway. Exactly. So it needs to make new recommendations. Exactly. But what we deploy now is essentially a, a full-on product that can refresh and give new recommendations and can stay there and can get new data and can get better data and, and more mature data. Do you think this is because historically we were using those insights to make a single decision, but now it's a lot more common for us to be deploying something that's making ongoing decision-making power. Exactly, exactly, okay. exactly. And this is very much the use case with many other software engineering products. These models are no longer solving for just one thing. They're trying to be ongoing and they're trying to improve the processes because that's that's eventually what matters. The model in itself, it's, it's really cool. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's amazingly cool and it's fascinating that a machine can do something like this. Yeah. But unless a human comes and applies those findings, then it's really boring because it, it doesn't do anything in the real world. Got you. They're decision-making tools. Yeah. It just happens to be that we're leveraging machine learning and cutting-edge data science and data engineering practices to inform those decisions. Exactly. Absolutely. How do you think that's changed the role of a data engineer? How do you think that's meant that you as a data engineer have had to evolve to serve this need, which is the deployment of software? that happens to have a machine learning component to it. Yeah. So as we alluded to before, you need to iterate a lot more. You're no longer just doing this linear waterfall process where you sort of say, okay, well, here's the data. And then the data scientist says, okay, thank you for the data. Here's the model. And then, you know, you get the insights from it and the recommendations that you should apply. But you need to be a lot more forward thinking. You need to sort of think, okay, so given that this is the data at this point, I can build my algorithms and my pipelines in a very particular way. But what if, and this comes loops back into your backlog and says, but what if we ingest another data set? What does that mean? And how does it impact my model? And where do I join all these data sets together for it to make sense? Mm -hmm. This is not always clear. And obviously, how does it drive value? And how does it make sense for the pipeline. So you have two responsibilities at that point. You have the mm. responsibility towards the actual business, the business problem, and then to the pipeline that it actually runs. Got you. And I guess what you're describing there is iteration on a product to better serve its end users. Yeah, absolutely. And ingesting a new data source is just one of many different things that we might do to change that product to solve that need. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very exciting. And this is one of the reasons where, like, for example, why I at the moment have taken a rotation in our internal product team. Okay, talk to me about that. Yeah. So I am currently on a rotation for a couple of months, uh, I think six months actually, with our internal product team, with Kedro. Okay. And for anyone that doesn't know what Kedro is, can you describe it to us? Yeah, absolutely. So Kedro is a Python package that allows you to build nice, robust, and scalable 
pipelines. It's like a framework of doing things that helps you build data sets really quickly. And it helps you share it really, really easily with your colleagues, with your team, essentially. And it moves you away from working in like a very sort of single individual fashion where you work quite often the tool of choice is a, a notebook where you work out of a notebook and you use in just your data sets and you work with them and it's like a nice visual interface, mm-hmm. but it's not very, you can't just give the notebook to somebody because they will look at it and say, oh my God, what is this? Whereas Kedro, what do they do differently? They do it a little bit differently because they sort of ask you to work in a very particular pattern that is intelligible where they, you put your configurations in, in a particular place, your data sets in a particular place, your code in a nicely structured place again. And, it, and then it allows you to run the code, package the code, deploy the code in like a nice, understandable, configurable fashion. And I guess the consistency of the way that they do that means it's easier to collaborate with other engineers. Yeah, absolutely. Which is inevitably becoming more and more the case on these complex products that we're building. Exactly. That's again, sort of looping back on how the industry has changed. It quite often used to be hire a data scientist and they will change the world for you. And then a lot of organizations realize that it's very hard for it to do for a single poor data scientist because then they need to wrangle all of their data and can clean it and so on and and then maintain it and then maintain it and then it raises really interesting questions around how we as an organization can serve organizations because moving from a project to a product mindset has big implications doesn't it it does whereas before to your point we washed our hands of that solution after we'd provided recommendations but actually if we're handing over a product someone's got to maintain that yeah and it's usually the client Because what we do, and these days we do it from the perspective of independence and responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. We want them to be able to do the same thing independently. And that has obviously, again, vast implications on capability building and knowledge transfer to the client so that they're independent, right? They can do all of this themselves. They can maintain it and not just maintain it, then they can go and build similar models themselves got you and i guess with us having a framework like kedro which is an industry tool now i mean probably call it an industry standard to some point uh that means that we can share that framework that consistency with an organization and they understand what they're going to be potentially working with once we leave that product once we hand it over to them yeah absolutely for anyone listening that is interested in getting into the discipline of data engineering where would you point them? What advice would you give them? What resources would you send them to? What resources would I send them to? That is a great question. It, de- it depends where you start, I, whether you start from engineering, from this sort of background, or you can start from class. I think the head of the global head of data engineering actually studied classics. Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter. Start doing, start working with Python, set yourself like a project and begin to think about If I take, because almost any program takes data and makes something with it. So it's all about what do you do with this data and how do you do it? So the resources I would point them to is, first of all, as I've mentioned previously, set yourself a project and start Mm -hmm. doing it yourself, Yeah, which I think is by far, bar none, the most powerful tool there is. And 
then there's obviously, because this this often works as a reinforcement loop in and of itself, there's other there's other places that can give you a good starting point in terms of small projects, and that can be Udemy and it can be Udacity and and Coursera and so on. But I I personally I'm I'm a strong believer of set yourself a project and and try to do it yourself. I think it's really really cool. Yeah, great. That's fantastic advice. Thank you very much for talking to us, Yuri. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to a podcast created by Quantum Black and McKinsey Company. This episode was produced by Catherine Chenton and edited by Clementine Rettig, Renata Sampaio Rodriguez, and myself, James Mulligan. If you'd like to learn more about Quantum Black, head to www.quantumblack.com. Thank you.